Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Welcome to our Mehfil. I'm your host, Amrita Ghosh. Let me set the mood for this Mehfil by reciting this beautiful couplet composed by Uday Bansal. Tumhari taal se betal, dunya tumhari shok se gafil hai. Takalluf chhod bhi do, aao, ye tumhari hi mehfil hai. This roughly translates as cast aside your inhibitions and be a part of our celebrations. Today I have two writers with me to talk about a topic that I'm keenly interested in and I know all of you are food and more food. This episode is called Kali Pulao on writing food which means cooking with your imaginations. In this episode we touch upon the space of food and culinary cultures specifically in Indian writing as a marker of identity as joy but also sources of pain i have with me to award winning very prolific and beloved writers from south asia chitra banerji devakarani based in the us and shumana roy from india devakarani is a brilliant storyteller who has written immersive books that have sustained me over the years many know devakarani from the film mistress of spices which was originally her novel Shumana Roy wears many hats as poet, writer, and academic, and she writes about many different things, literature to plants, language, and of course, food. Welcome to this Mehfil. What a pleasure. Thank you for joining me in the studio today. Let's talk food. So my first question is to you, Chitra. Let's start by saying you write absolutely mouth-watering novels. They are rich with food imagery, symbols, they mention Bengali food, but also other kinds of food. And sometimes you even suggest recipes. Tell us why you choose to focus on food. I think I started writing about food. In fact, all my writing was really a response to my moving away from home when i was about you know 19 years old i came to the us to for my higher studies and that was really a time when i was at once um enamored of all the changes around me but also i was feeling very homesick and i wanted and i felt my identity was shifting so much that i wanted something to hold on to and so part of that was writing about india part of that was writing about food uh, food anchored me in some ways as i could see in my immigrant community it was anchoring other people too so that's how i started yeah and and i think i started with writing about women who were trying to recreate the foods of their childhood and youth in a country where at that time in the 1970s you couldn't get spices you couldn't get the ingredients you couldn't get the vegetables you couldn't get dal so there was a lot of improvisation and i think that improvisation really became a symbol for you know how immigrants live their lives thank you um i really like the idea of food anchoring us um in many ways um my next question comes from that shomona Uh, you are the founder and executive editor of a journal titled On Eating, a multilingual journal of food and eating. 
tell us about the origins of this journal and the focus on food. I'm also interested in what you call eating cultures. How are food cultures different from eating cultures? Uh, Amrita, I must clarify that I'm co-editor and co-founder of On Eating, uh, a multilingual journal of food and eating. Uh, Kunal Ray, uh, who teaches literature and cultural studies at Flame University in Pune, is the co-editor. So uh, he's the salt to my pepper, as it were, I'd say. Um, Kunal and I had met a couple of times and we realized, particularly during the lockdown, uh, which is when we began speaking as well, Amrita, you and I, uh, that many of our conversations happened to be about food. Uh, no, not about baking bread or a certain kind of coffee and so on, uh, but about food cultures in general. Both of us love to eat. And then suddenly uh, we imagined an archive that could hold conversations around food history of the kind we had been uh, having, you know, through text messages only so far. Now, Kunal, who is far more energetic and enterprising than me, and much younger as well, took it to um, Sanjeevji of the Takshila Society, and he agreed to sponsor our journal right away. Though we were new to this, we were sure about one thing, that our journal would not become a recipe book. But it so happened that Manoranjan Vyapari's essay that uh, inaugurated our journal included a recipe for something that he used to cook that came at the end of the essay. Now, Vyapari, as you know, all of us know, or hopefully all of us know, a writer from a marginalized caste and class, used to cook midday meals in schools and before that held jobs as a helper helper cook, you know, a sous chef would be too fancy a term with a food catering unit. The recipe was a kind of subversion. The recipe at the end of the essay was a kind of subversion, both as a dish and to the form of the essay. Like say George Orwell's essay on making tea challenges the conservative form of the essay. You asked me about eating cultures uh, and I'm thinking um, back to the time of you know, when I kind of thought of this phrase, what did we mean when I, when we said eating cultures? Now, during our discussions, we often spoke about the lack of eating scenes in Indian cinema. Uh, I think you'll agree that there were very few scenes where the characters ate in a way like I think the three of us do. I remember the Bengali filmmaker Ritu Ghosh saying this about Satyajit Ray's films, that Ray was a rare film director uh, who showed people eating like one does in real life. He was, of course, not talking about the way Gupi and Bagha eat in those films. Uh, but how do people eat what they do? What are these contexts and histories? How does one eat roti in Haryana? And how does it differ from a family eating roti in B Bengal? The recipe might be the same, as in the food might be the same, but almost everything else, uh, including the history of the farming of the wheat, is different. So the disappearance of older species of rice and the loss of those names and their manner of cooking, these are all part of uh, what I think are our eating cultures. For instance, we have an essay about shondesher chach or sweet molds, an heirloom that no one uses anymore. This is also what we mean by eating cultures, an archive of a way of living that is related to food. Um, I think uh, subconsciously I might have been thinking about 
what Abhijit Majumdar, the Naxalite leader Charu Majumdar's son, who was my professor in Shiliguri College, used to tell us that education at the school level should be, almost could be, uh, almost exclusively about giving a student a plate of their favorite food and asking them to trace the root of its ingredients uh, right up to the farmer. Uh, he used to say that that would give us, the students, consumers of what we call food and education about the history of labor required at various steps from cook back to firm farmer about what it takes to create something um, that we can put inside our mouth and then relish. Uh, I think this is what we understand as eating cultures in our journal. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. And I could really I could I say something that you know <laughs> some ideas that came up as you were speaking, which is that you know food as subversion is so important. And um, in many of my books, food becomes a subversive tool. And I want to talk especially about uh, my historical novel, The Last Queen, which is about the life of Maharani Jinda Kaur. And towards the end of her life, Maharani Jinda Kaur, who always fought the British with like everything she had, is forced to go to England because that's where her son, Dalip Singh, is living and he is not allowed to live elsewhere. So her love for her son is more than her hatred for the British. So she moves there, but she chooses to continue eating Indian food. So she manages to get cooks and she makes the, you know, she makes the most, um, what shall I say, fragrant, but to the British smelly dishes so that Everyone living in that area will smell this Indian food that they don't want to deal with. So she keeps her culture, she keeps her uh, autonomy, and she uses this as a kind of rebellion in a situation where she can't at all. So I think women often use food to show this kind of autonomy and rebellion. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to point that out. And sometimes it's a power struggle also between sometimes men and women, but sometimes between women in a household, like who shall cook what? <laughs> as, as when a new uh, bride comes into the household, you know, she's often told, well, in our house, this is how we cook things. Yeah. And that kind of relates to what was just being said. Um, and then she can either follow that or like, um, Panchali does in my novel, Palace of Illusion, she can go against it and she can say, no, this is how I'm going to cook it. If you want me to cook, this is how I'm going to cook it. So food has often been a way for women to assert themselves. Yeah. Thank you to you both. And you've given us so many different things to uh, think about right away. And I was thinking, uh, Shumona, when you mentioned the scenes of eating are rarely there, and I, I started thinking, don't we have eating? And truly, I cannot recall. I do recall big tables of food or, you know, instances of eating, but not really the eating cultures as you define them. Um, but also, food as subversion brings me to uh, something I wanted to talk about. Chitra, uh, food in your books also become magical. And you were talking about the, the feminisms they hold. Um, 
they have a mythical value. And I'm talking about Mistress of Spices specifically, one sees this mysticism related to food and spices there. Interestingly, as you were talking about uh, gender and women um, creating subversion, these magical spices in the book are controlled by women who have the know-how and the art of using them. But also through this, there is a core of solidarity happening in the book, a sisterhood. How do you navigate the stereotypical associations you were just talking about in um, The Last Queen, um, but also the subversions in the book um, with women and food to give us this radical and intimate spaces of sisterhood? Yeah, and, and this is true. Um, food allows us spaces of sisterhood. And, you know, I have a lot of books that have sisters, actual sisters, but also a lot of books that have women who are close friends. And sometimes they cook together or sometimes they will cook for each other. So in my novel, The Vine of Desire, which is a follow-up to Sister of My Heart, there are two cousins and they're very close, Anju and Sudha. Well, Anju goes to the United States and Sudha after a terrible failed marriage where she escapes so that she won't have to um, abort her first child who's going to be a girl. She ends up in the US and uh, Anju wants to do something special for her, but Anju left India before she could really, before she learned to cook, she was married very early. And as in many, you know, relatively affluent households, there was a cook to do all the cooking. So she only knows American food. So she cooks, you know, she cooks all these uh, Italian dishes and she cooks spaghetti and she's cooking all these things for her dear sister who comes and who will eat because it's cooked with love, but who's really kind of, you know, taken aback by all this food that she doesn't know anything about. And it makes her realize that she has left a space called home behind and she will have to create a space of her own. Now in Mistress of Spices, um, I wanted to choose spices as a symbol, a central symbol in the book because spices are at once, you know, they have a huge history. They have a huge history of colonialism attached to them, but also they're so common right at on one level they are um we could say unusual expensive all of those things but the common spices like turmeric holut in bengal we use it in everything we use it not only in food but in other uh, ways in which women's lives are impacted you know you put it on your skin uh, going back to that idea that it will make you fairer which has its own problems. So I wanted to use uh, spices. And I also was very interested and continued to be in Ayurveda at that time. And that is a whole other angle on spices and how spices are healing. So spices as medicine. I wanted to bring all of those things in to um, counter kind of an exotic notion of spices as not belonging to us. So the spices in that book really, I hoped, would belong to the reader by the end of the book. Thank you. Um, I want to turn to you, Shimona, and I'm thinking about, you know, again, what you said about your journal. And I happened to once teach this delightful essay by you on Tagore and food. And I wanted to revisit that particular essay. 
um, today. And he discussed this craze and focus on food in various Tagore celebrations that happen in India, but also out of India. Um, there's this focus on Tagore's kitchen uh, with all these delectable dishes. Um, but these dishes, what's happening in the kitchen is also at odds with the philosophical underpinnings of his idea of internationalism. Can you explain how food then becomes a source of understanding this? Thank you, Amrita. I've said this before, but let me say it again for uh, reading and teaching the essay. I think I wrote it more than a decade ago. Um, I, I, at that time, I'm trying to remember, I think I was reading a lot of Bangla child rhymes at that time, and I was struck by how much my nephew had just been born, and uh, he's 11 now, so I might have started going back to the Bangla child rhymes at that time and I think I remember being struck by how much food features in them. I'm just giving these arbitrary or random examples that are coming to me uh, as I speak to you and Chitra now. My boy will go to catch a fish. The constant annotation of the abundance of produce. Um, the idea of the doll made of uh, sweetened desiccated milk. The tiler khaja, um, you know, as a reward, the sesame seed sweets, dui deke dui rui katla bheshe uthetse, the different kinds of fishes and their taste, and you feel them as much in the pond as you do the, their taste inside your mouth. Uh, Rabindranath Tagore was, as you know, very interested in collecting child rhymes um, in the life of what was and is still considered. Uh, to be superfluous. Uh, he asked the women in his family, uh, most urgently his wife, Milanini Devi, to go out and collect as many child rhymes and stories as she could. And then he wrote that extraordinary essay about uh, child rhymes, I think in 1894 or 1895, I can't exactly remember. Um, and what had he found in them, I wondered at that time. His own first lines of verse were about food, as you know. About mango and milk and so on. I'm sorry, I have a bad throat like Chitra today. Uh, it was this then that led me towards the Tagore kitchen. Hmm. I wanted to know um, what did they eat, these people? Uh, like their interest in art and craft and literature and music and drama had impacted Bengali life. I know you sing Rabindra Shangit, um, Amrita. Uh, the members of the Tagore family, both its women and men, I realized, uh, I discovered, sorry, they took an active interest in experimenting in the kitchen. Mm. There are, of course, the well-known and documented records by Prokashundari Devi, of course. But I was particularly interested in Rabindranath's own inputs and innovations, how he would ask someone to make a sweet, someone in the kitchen out of love, some kind of gourd or, or the other. And um, as I read through them, these recipes and their dad's stories, the letters uh, exchanged about recipes from places such as Assam to Bengal and Darjeeling, um, or, uh, you know, Dehradun or wherever he might be, might have been in, I felt the urge to go to his text, Nationalism, that well-circulated text, written almost in a state of deep emergency. 
There I discovered, I must confess, slightly to my surprise, that Rabindranath Tagore was a man with two tongues, if you let me use that uh, phrase. The one whose plate was different from his page. Um, the two tongues, I mean. So a believer and practitioner of the idea of Vishwa, a philosophy mm. of the world, of the entirety of the world being his as he was of the world's, he was the opposite of a nationalist, at least politically. In the kitchen, though, there were no experiments with two things in particular that in his book, Nationalism, he kept invoking to define what he called the West, meat and wine. These two he looked at with a degree of suspicion. Mm. I feel slightly hesitant to share this now, Amrita, um, for fear of this being misunderstood and opportunistically appropriated by the present um, censorious culture in India. But as you uh, have seen from that essay, I was trying to see that here was a person who was saying something in this text and then practicing something else in the kitchen. And I think that in spite of whatever it might be about our greatness, about the greatness ascribed to certain people or people in general, there are always contraries inside us. And it was that that interested me. This is very fascinating um, in so many ways. I've come to add something. Uh, Amrita, because uh, Sumana spoke about uh, current uh, dramas in India, yeah. can you say something and say that we will also have an episode specifically about caste? And yes. just refer to the terrible political environment and the cow vigilante stuff that's going on. Um, and then and then when you're formulating the next question, just uh, I told you, as I said in the chat, yes, speak a little more about uh, Sweden. So otherwise, we're not getting to know you very much. OK, then after we are done recording, let's record you commenting on Chitra's uh, long answer on Mistress of Spices because it felt a bit abrupt your shift. Okay. 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 All right. Thank you. Okay. Let's start with commenting on Sumana. Thank you, Shumana, for that. Um, you have also unraveled a really um, devastating, in some way, a topic that is uh, appropriate to our times in ways that you know the cow vigilantism is happening in um, in India, um, and deeply has its implications on caste and food. And I also wanted to remind our viewers here today that we are having a very specific um, episode on uh, caste and food. So please do watch out for that. Um, I want to turn the conversation, and you have both touched upon this in, in some ways in how uh, food anchors us, but also causes us some alienations. Um, and how this kind of improvisation is going on in terms of how to find the foods that you belong to, want to belong to in very foreign spaces. So food cultures, culinary traditions are not always pleasant and enriching to the self. And what we cook and eat, as Shimona, you were just pointing to, can become sources of severe alienation for marginalized communities within the country, also in immigrant spaces. And I'm really thinking back to the last five and a half years I've spent in Sweden, where part of my family is. And um, 
I always thought it was really hard for me to find some of the foods that I've grown up with or wanted to cook. Or even Indian restaurants having a certain kind of Scandinavian uh, touch to it that was really far from what the Indian food that I had grown up with. Um, so certain types of food cultures get fetishized. I remember I had ordered um, something chaat, and you, both of you were like, and I got something back with avocados and a mix of certain things that was really, really far away from anything that was chaat to me. And I specifically remember that example. And of, of course, we also see that with this currency of vegetarianism um, in India. How do you both navigate this tricky line between food and national belonging? Shall I go first? Please, please. Okay. So I wanted to say that, you know, that is so funny because just the other day we went to a very, a friend had invited us to a very fancy fusion restaurant and they served us chat with avocado. I, I just wanted to tell you this. However, when I went to Kolkata this time, there were some very popular fusion restaurants there as well. So I think it's like, it's something that's all over the world. And you know, uh, the traditionalist in us might say, oh, how terrible. Actually, uh, recipes over centuries have always been improvising depending on what was available and what was affordable. So we do have to keep that in mind. I think sometimes when we live outside of the culture, we are very, uh, we're very attached to the way we knew things to be before we left. But that's not true. Culture is like this river that keeps moving. But I wanted to talk a little bit about faces that people are not allowed into. And I, I want to talk about my um, novel in stories uh, before we visit the goddess, because it's about a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter. The grandmother will spend all her life in India, mostly in Bengal, and the daughter will escape to the US during uh, Naxalite times, and the granddaughter will live in the US all her life. But when uh, the grandmother, she wants, her mother was a sweet maker in a village. I mean, she just made sweets, um, kind of like a caterer. If there was a party in a rich household, she was known to make good sweets. So she would make them, she would be asked to make them. Now, um, the grandmother wants, She's also a very good cook, and she wants a career in sweet making. And at that time in India, and even now, not in India, in Bengal, and even now to a great extent, sweet making is, was uh, the territory of men. If you think back to the sweet making in Bengal, all the major sweet makers were men. And, you know, all of them especially Bhimshem Nag, if you think mm. of him, you know, but there's a whole list. So when she tries to break into this territory, there's like huge uh, repercussions and huge uh, protests against this woman starting a shop, a sweet shop of her own. And she's very determined and she's, you know, but she has to struggle a lot. And I really wanted to bring that out because um, you know, people often think, oh, women cooking goes together. But if it's a business, if it becomes a business as well, often women are kept out of that space, at least in the time of 
like uh, we're talking about the 1940s, the 1950s, even the 1960s, this was very much the case. And I think to a large extent, even now in Kolkata, that's very much the case. A, a rich woman can have a boutique uh, eatery, but that's different. If you mm. want to really make your living at it, it's very different. I wanted to point to that. But also her daughter, when she comes to the US, you know, at a certain point, her marriage has broken up. She has to find a way to make a living and she decides that she's going to cook. And she's given a job in one of these big food stores and she's going to be cooking, demonstrating Indian food cooking. And she's all excited. And then they tell her, we only want you to make chicken tikka masala. Oh. She is just <laughs> so upset. She's like, that isn't even Indian. <laughs> you know, we have such a rich food culture, but you think of Indian food and you think of chicken tikka masala. And, you know, that is also something that happens when other <laughs> cultures look at, uh, let's say, Indian food culture. There are certain ideas, there are certain dishes. It, it's very weird and complicated. It is absolutely Com complex in a way, you know, especially um, in the immigrant spaces that at least two of us here inhabit and from my three different access points that I have lived in, you know, I am associated with a certain kind of food in the Bengali household and then looking at Indian restaurants, there is no uh, understanding and yet there is this chicken tikka masala and the paneer saag, which gains a certain kind of dominance everywhere as the Indian food. Um, but, you know, and also this is not considered high cuisine. This is considered something of a lesser, you know, this is an Indian food, which is the only kind of Indian food prevalent, but there are hierarchies in the presence of food. Right. I mean, what we consider high cuisine versus the not so great cuisines. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Uh, food can also be a real source of rebellion. And going back to that same novel, um, the daughter becomes this wonderful cook. And now she, you know, she moves out of chicken tikka masala space and she's created a website. And then she puts out a book of what she considers authentic Bengali cuisine. And it is. It's authentic Bengali cuisine. And uh, there's a scene right at the end where she's very old now. She's going to be moving into an old people's home and her daughter has come to pack her up and she's like, cook me one last meal. And the daughter doesn't know how to cook any Indian food. She has purposely distanced herself from Indian food because she feels she is not Indian. And that I, I wanted to say that that's something that I have seen you know, many times, not always, but many times in the younger people, um, a desire to separate oneself, oneself from these traditional foods, stereotypical foods, saying, I'm going to find my own space. And that might come out of painful child, childhood experiences. I remember my children talking to me about it. You know, I would pack their lunches and they said, mom, never pack anything Indian in my lunch. And this is when they were little, because everyone will make fun of it and they will say, we stink. It was very painful for them and painful for me to hear it, how mm -hmm. food could become a source of racism. Yeah. You know, 
and how <laughs> the foods that I knew my children loved, they could not eat them in public spaces. I, I want Shimona to respond to all of this, but I quickly wanted to also come in and say that, you know, I agree I'm not a food purist um, with the whole conversation on fusion food. Uh, I do welcome that. And I do think, you know, even the sources of dolma, when I was in Sweden, I realized that, you know, portolid dolma, which I considered was high India uh, Bengali food, was in fact not so. It came from sources in the Middle East. And, you know, then it was considered a Swedish um, delicacy. So, yes, there is fusion and there's, there are these um, appropriations or improvisations. But something about that avocado chat had made a certain impact on me that I, I, I still revisit in my mind. Um, but Shumona, let's, let's hear from you. Uh, let me try and uh, respond to what you uh, said about um, different types of food cultures and vegetarianism and what I think you call the tricky line between food and national belonging. Um, I have been thinking about this a lot, particularly because of the journal that we've created. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Amrita, I, I think I do not wake up in the morning thinking, ah, oh, I'm an Indian. Uh, I do not put anything inside my mouth thinking, I must eat this because I'm an Indian. Or I mustn't eat this for I'm an Indian after all. Um, so to be an Indian, in my understanding, and because of the legacy of many philosophers and thinkers and eaters before me, is to believe that every kind of experience is available to me and for me. Uh, and therefore, this idea of India and Indians, sorry, um, being restricted to what we put inside our mouth mm. is something that I don't understand at all. So I think of being Indian as someone so that I can say to myself, so I can eat anything and everything that I want to, need to, crave for, and I can reject anything that I don't feel the appetite for. Um, I, I refuse, I completely refuse to be bullied by the Indian state or my fellow citizens for what goes inside my mouth. And I refuse to bully anyone for what they want to or don't want to eat. Having said this, I also want to say uh, that I dislike the moral superiority of vegetarians in an eating culture like ours. I also dislike the idea of meeting, meat eating as a performance of political behavior. I dislike both because I do not understand either. In a place Sonipat, for instance, where I teach, where my neighbors, both in the building where I live and also in the town, are mostly vegetarian. It is difficult to find fish or even meat. Apart from the fact that this has imposed a dietary pattern on my eating habits, there is also the fact of being labeled repeatedly. You know, you're a Bengali, how does it feel to live without fish? Yes. Or even something as... Um, harsh i would say as i would have liked to come to your flat but i can't stand the smell of fish wow um, as someone uh, whose affection and affinities for plant life are as strong as they are as you know it makes me angry very very angry and very very sad that people are being killed for eating the flesh of cows 
by those who eat the food that cows eat mm. uh, it's ridiculous by this this i mean that the moral hierarchy that a section of vegetarians have constructed in their heads shows a complete disregard for both scientific thought mm. and an understanding of the very culture that they claim to uphold mm. one that tells us that plants are living beings so there's no ethical difference in my head between eating plants and animals but all this is as we know backed by a government whose political symbol comes from plant life ironically a lotus mm. the irony uh and uh, to add to the conversation um that you and chitra were having about the immigrants food experience i think the punjabification of indian cuisine very similar to the patterns of hindi cinema up to a certain point mm-hmm. in our cultural lives has meant the marginalization of all other kinds of cuisine this also has to do with i think the the labor involved in cooking a full course bengali meal for instance Very from shakpala bhaja dal shukto right up to tomato chutney or jalpai chutney uh, whereas uh, you know something like rajma chawal would do or chole bhature would do that just these combinations and uh, they're always surprised even when i live alone and i eat four or five things with my rice i'm, I'm a compulsive rice eater uh but it's 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 very different for my neighbors who are just eating something else uh that you know that is that does not involve that kind of labor mm-hmm. i also want to add something here again to what um you and chitra were discussing i was watching this video blog um by this channel called bong eats mm-hmm. where they invited uh a writer uh, on food called Krish Ashok and uh, he said that i think he was from tamil nadu he's from tamil nadu and um he said that in rice eating cultures such as bengal and parts of southern india because it does not involve linear labor that the rice can be cooked or these rice preparations can be cooked and left at home women have been able to go out to work and in roti eating cultures where you know it involves kind of linear labor making the dough then kind of rolling it out and then having the roti warm to serve to people who are eating this mm-hmm. is in tailor culture where women have been trapped at home so mm-hmm. so many things to think about through absolutely yeah, yeah. you know I-, i wanted to respond to something you said uh, shimana which mm-hmm. is you know people when they are looking at food as like determining the moral purity of a person mm-hmm. um i'm reminded you know for many years i've been following swami chinmayananda and swami chinmayananda once said something that has stayed with me all my life and somebody was talking to him about you know how what is satvic food and look at this person doesn't eat satvic food and mm-hmm. of course bengalis are low down on that <laughs> <laughs> and swami chinmayananda looked at him you know very directly he had these big eyes swami ji and he said yes what goes into your mouth is important but what comes out of it is much more important ah, and i never thought in that 
it's I think everyone should recall that yeah. statement by a person who I thought was you know highly spiritual and mm -hmm. he recognized that. I'm fascinated because we have covered um, from food a source of identity to the hierarchies that um, subjective identities, communities, labor, access to food, all these complex um, determination, determinants create um, food as this trope of collective identity, but also in many ways, so much of division within us, whether in the nation state or in diasporic spaces, as we just talked about. But, you know, trying to create some space where we also talk about food as sources of joy. I'm, I want to ask both of you, um, are you both good cooks? Do you cook yourself? And you know, how do you participate in the eating cultures? Um, referring to Shumona's um, concept that she talked about earlier. Yeah, uh, before I answer that, I just wanted to talk about one other thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, this relates to my newest book, Independence. So during the freedom struggle, when there was, you know, a lot of killing, you know, between uh, Hindus and Muslims, there was a lot of violence, a lot of men died, and women had to take over both the economic welfare of the family and the food gathering welfare. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, I, I wanted to point out in that book how women had to really become kind of the hunter-gatherers of the family. And in villages, this often meant they would go searching for food. And they went to things like the shag that grew inside in ponds, things that at other times they would not maybe pay so much attention to. And they learned at that time how to make the most of food that was not considered, um, you know, like fancy food or desired foods, uh, but the way in which women survived through those times. It's really important for us to think about how women have often become the gatherers of food at times of historical or political stresses. And, you know, we don't give women enough credit for things like that, when they took over the survival of a family often, mm -hmm. you know, often with great um, selfless activity. I remember my mother who lived through those times telling me, and especially during the Bengal famine when she was a girl, mm -hmm. she said the mother in the house would be the last to eat. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes there would be nothing for her except the water that came out of the rice. You know, when we cook rice, Bengalis, they pour mm -hmm. out the water, the fan. Oh, and yes. she, she talked about it. And I think that is also a kind of battle, right? That is also a kind of resistance. And women who manage to do that and help their families to survive are heroes, but they're unsung heroes. And I guess that's one of the things in my book, all my books, that women are so often unsung heroes. And often, you know, the kitchen is their battleground. I, I do agree. Um, and I, you know, as you were talking, I 
was thinking about how, you know, we have to rethink resistance itself. I mean, also the stereotypical association of women uh, as the cooks in the family. I mean, you already are laying out different spaces where this is an everyday kind of resistance, whether it's the Bengal famine or the partition or daily kind of our present time. It's not just that women are stuck in the kitchen cooking, right? It's, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, but I want to come back to you participating in food cultures as cooks and eating cultures. Tell us about that. <laughs> okay, so am I a good cook? Let's say, let's put it this way. I can be a good cook, but I'll only make that special effort for special occasions and special people. And I have to confess, like I have two boys and if they want to eat something, then I will go all the way and make it. <laughs> which uh, sometimes annoys my husband. He's like, why don't we eat like this all the time? And then I say, well, then I wouldn't be writing anything all the time. But um, so I have experimented a lot with different cuisines. I do love certain Bengali dishes um, that I keep going back to. And I love cooking with panchpuron. So, and now my husband, who is from the South, has become a lover of panchpuron, and he'll see what you something with panchpuron. So, uh, that's one part of it. But then I have to say, what are my absolute favorite foods? Okay, this is a confession. It's uh, Chinese food. I love Chinese food. And as you probably know, in Bengal, there's a real, in Kolkata, where I grew up, there's a real Chinese food culture. And it's yeah. so wonderful how that fusion has happened and Bengali uh, eaters have just embraced Chinese food, but it's a particular kind of Chinese food. And I do know uh, how to make that. So I often cook that when I feel like uh, having something special. And then my very last and final confession, my equally favorite food. All right, people, are you ready for this? Is pizza. I just... <laughs> <laughs> We shall remember that you like to cook Chinese food, Chitra. <laughs> sure. Um, I like to cook, though not for every meal like I have to do now because I live uh, by myself in Sony, but for half of the year. I really like to experiment quite a bit. Uh, I think I cook from instinct. Uh, when I say experiment, I mean that most of these experiments haven't always been completely intentional as I think the two of you realize what I mean, they have also come from deprivation, from not having enough things in the fridge or pantry and trying to cook something from what is there. Uh, that is how, for instance, my recipe for Moshud Dal dumpling curry came to be. Uh, sometimes it's been a craving for a particular flavor. That is how I made my version of coconut fritters. Um, there have also been times I'm trying to think. There have also been times when I've tried to do something to cut out sugar or dairy. Uh, that is how I stumbled upon making a cake with almond flour and patali gur, date palm jaggery, and that's now become our Christmas cake because this is the time of the year we get the best patali gur in Bengal. Um, I don't know whether I cook very well, but I know that I like to eat. And that is why I think a lot about food. I'm always thinking about food and the next meal. And it's that's really true. Uh, with age, I've come to realize that even though I did not always grow up eating that food, since my mother is half Ghoti, 
my palate leans towards bangal cuisine the food of my father's family mm. uh, this has not happened to me because of my father or his family but through the women who have cooked in our houses uh, their chittagong or chatga or silhet or pabna origins has now inflected what i crave for mm. so my fondness for bata uh, which is uh, you know ingredients whether vegetables or dried fish being ground into a paste or for bhorta uh, comes from them i try to import that technique with other ingredients last week for instance i made a teel bata from white sesame seeds like that mm. and i had it with dal and rice for lunch but also with pakoras when two of my friends came over for tea we had it while watching a film <laughs> yeah sounds delicious i'm getting hungry with the both of you talking <laughs> i think um, i just wanted to add one thing which is that i think a lot of my uh, desire for food and love for food really comes out in the books mm. and interesting yes, when i yeah. create a scene where a certain food is made and people have either enjoyed it or interacted with it in dramatic ways uh, somehow that craving goes away from me it's as though it's just transposed into the books it's uh, yeah it's really interesting because uh, when i don't when i'm not in the middle of a book that has a lot of food i want to cook more but when i'm in the middle of such a book it's like writing about it is the same as cooking and eating it and i i just can't explain that maybe it's just that the experience i feel the experience and that's satisfying in itself that that's fascinating go on i i thought that was such a wonderful way to avoid putting on weight <laughs> you but you know it's i think uh, i was thinking of bhattanayak one of the commentators of the rasa theory and where he says that brahman is inside my mouth and so to experience the world inside your mouth so you know as three of us uh, with our kind of <laughs> understanding of the bangla language and bangla culture bengalis eat everything not just food but thappor slap a case chumu a case a cake everything bengalis just eat everything so i just think that we come from a tradition and i i know i say can say this only for bengal and um, bangla but i'm sure it exists in our other indian languages as well that to experience everything inside the mouth Uh, which is what the rasa theorists were actually trying to probably say uh, 1500 1600 years ago right and i think what i'm saying fits right into that right you experience it yes yes absolutely inside yourself right and yes. that is satisfying in a whole different and, way and i think oh, we have to just speak about one bengali thing i don't even know maybe you guys can um translate it better i remember when uh, my aunt my an older aunt would always say matha khao yeah and and it was like an kind of an angry statement i want matha khao at the very even in an exasperated sense and i know we are now completely in a bengali uh, space but you know uh, what should we eat and in jest you would say uh, ghora dim or yeah. to translate to you know 
I think PJ and what's that how translates into why don't you eat my head? You're giving me so much trouble, just <laughs> but it exists in Hindi as well, right? As in Bheja Mat yes. Khao or something like that. Yes, yes, like don't eat my head. Um yeah. or uh, you know brain fried kind of thing. Uh, but I'm also thinking both of you have talked about this in a way where it's so wonderful that you're writing food, you're experiencing, but also inhabiting. Like I, I think those are powerful ways of participating in food cultures and eating cultures especially. Um, and I think it also connects to what I wanted to talk about as a question for writers who are listening to this and partly you have both um, mentioned what it could be, but how does one write about food? What tips can you both offer? Maybe I'll let Shimona go first. <laughs> I've always been jumping in. <laughs> uh, one writes about food the way one writes about uh, everything else, with honesty, uh, with, of course, an awareness of the invocation of the senses, which Chitra uh, just spoke about and writes about in her books. But all of that, I think, will follow naturally. Uh, one of the risks I find, uh, one of the risks about writing about food is the tendency for description, which often becomes over description. There's a tendency to write about food as if it were an oil painting. That kind of glossiness in food writing, uh, Amrita, I find unattractive, even unappealing. Like everything else, I like the food to come to me, whether on a page or a plate as Senedoke. It's aroma or a highlighted taste or an unexpected twist, sure. One thing I do not like as a reader is this, um, Food writing as Instagram food photos or writing. I was just thinking about what you were saying about Instagram <laughs> and food pornography that we have. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I love like, seeing. They just yeah. watching. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I watch, uh, that's what I watch all day YouTube shots or, you know, Instagram, Panma Lakshmi cooking something. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I meant to say is my relationship with food is real. Not everything I cook turns out as I'd have liked it to. Not everything I'm forced to eat because of the circumstances of my life and location is pretty or even completely palatable. Uh, not everything I like to eat is available, not to me and not to most people on the planet. So I refrain from this exoticization of food. Um, let me give you an example of the kind of food writing I like. Uh, this is from a poem by Chitra just a little while ago mentioned uh, her mother being a young girl at the time of the Bengal famine. And um, so Birendra Chattopadhyay, a Marxist poet, wrote this very short poem that I'm reading in Shupriya Chaudhary's translation. Um, the astonishing smell of rice in the night sky. It seems that some still cook rice still serve it, still eat it. And we are awake all night with the astonishing smell of rice in supplication all night. So this is, I think, as the two of you have guessed, it's from this uh, very well-circulated poem, Aschurjo Bhater Gandhu by Birendra mm -hmm. Chattopadhyay. Uh, 
he wrote this poem during the food riots of 1965. Now, coming from a family that has lost or that had lost many to the Bengal famine of 1943, I remember being haunted by this poem. So it is one thing to say that a poem has a haunting quality and quite another to feel that it is haunted by a history of hunger. As you know, in, even in the translation where it loses a part of its urgency and immediacy and even the smell, I would say, it is, uh, it is, we can see it's evident that it's a poem by a hungry people. And I say this not only because of the we in the second stanza, for instance. Uh, it's very easy uh, to kind of see where the poem is taking place. It's about two neighborhoods of those who are cooking and eating rice and those in their immediate vicinity or in their immediate neighborhood who will have to stay hungry all night. And that difference is emphasized by the number of verbs that rice eaters are given. For instance, cook and serve and eat. And the only one that the hungry are allowed, which is to stay awake. Mm -hmm. So smell is a noun that comes to the hungry. Smell is a verb. If I say smell as verb would be giving them too much allowance. Now see, night occurs in, in this. It's a very short poem. It's a six line poem. The word night or rat um, occurs thrice. So mm. the night is long. Saying it thrice makes it longer. But see, the regime of hunger, remaining hungry through the night is even longer. So in, in rice eating cultures like ours in Bengal or like mine in Bengal, eating rice ends the day in a culture like ours and brings it to a naturalized close. So be deprived of that doesn't allow the rice eater to sleep. And the day doesn't end because the hunger doesn't end. Mm. Um, now notice that the word Ashchodro, which is the word that Shupya Chodri translates as astonishing, is a rasa. It's the Adbhuta rasa, the rasa of wonder. Now invoking it for the most familiar smell of rice leaves the reader homeless. Uh, just as the people have been left deprived of the certainty of rice to seal the day. The word bhat. So I just want to say that in poems such as this one, which are not necessarily about the description of food, yeah. it's hunger. It's not in hunger is food is Instagrammable, not hunger. Yeah. So that's also one way of writing about food. And one that I don't find um active or pursued in our contemporary culture today, where so much is what is visible rather than what is invisible. So um, in Bangla, the word for someone who enjoys their food is bhojun roshik. Roshik, as we know, derives from rasa. Uh, so in, to invoke the many rasas depending on their context is how one writes about food. In All That Breeds, for instance, a film that I think you plan to discuss in your podcast, Amrita. We do. Uh, there is a scene where meat is being minced in a machine for food for the birds, for the kites. I will say that I watched it last week and I'll say that I felt slightly repelled by that scene. And then I immediately wondered or asked myself why I was feeling that way. Even though I still eat meat occasionally, very occasionally, I couldn't really understand why I was experiencing bibhatsa rasa, um, you know, that disgust. Then almost like an epiphany, it struck me that for the birds in the sky to stay alive, they need to be fed birds on land. Mm. There are many other things to say, but I've already spoken a lot. I also want to add, I want to end uh, by saying that I dislike the word foodie. 
the eye attached to something one loves is something i do not understand for me it's a bit like taking the name of a person you love and attaching an ie to it so amriti and you know chitri or something like that so i just hate <laughs> it also is very much uh, recalling selfie for me which you know turns into other kind of social media um this sort of you know popularisms that are there so uh, you're right but i also love the trans um the recitation and translation uh, and i think you also opened up the space of the smell that it doesn't get written about or talked about that much thank yeah. you chitra yes yes uh, so many wonderful things you said you know bhojan roshik is a lovely word although when i was growing up the word more used for children especially if we eat too much or were too fond of food in bengal was pituk <laughs> you remember that oh, hangla yeah and hangla hangla and pituk so you know and there was a sense especially for girls that you should not be yes. too fond of food you should not ask for too much <coughs> so food is often seen as a way of keeping people in their places you know keeping people in their gender roles yes you cook it you serve it but you shouldn't be too fond of it you know others eat first anyway so for for me whenever i write about food it has to be connected to the drama of the scene or the uh, characters so food for me is a way for me to understand or for my reader to understand the characters maybe where they come from but also what is their situation where are they in social hierarchies where are they in positions of power or lack of power uh, where are they in intercultural relationships in my newest um, novel independence there are hindu characters and muslim characters and in the beginning uh, before direct action day when hindus and muslims you know were living side by side working side by side and fighting for independence side by side there was a lot of eating together and you know i show that in the beginning which by the end after around partition and after partition that changes a lot a uh, sad um and there's and yet it, it, you know yet the cultures are just as connected as side by side but so we use food there are dramatic situations when food is used to punish a certain community perhaps yeah. or food is taken away from you Uh, to show power of another community over you or another class over you so for me food it's it's really important to use food in these ways because it is a basic sustenance it is something which i deeply feel that everyone has a right to at least in terms of you know a good level of survival but that's not the case that's not the case and you know i have scenes of hunger in my books where i point that out that who gets to eat who gets to eat what who has power in food situations who has power to decide you know what a family eats what a community eats and should there be a kind of power where other people decide what you are allowed to eat i think that beautiful poem shimona that you read uh, that also talks about that right why should you know certain people eat and certain people only think about the food that is being cooked yeah. and um, but that is the 
that is the truth of the world. So I think often food for me be becomes this way of showing us where the character is in the world and in the power structure. Thank you to both of you. What you have both done here in this extremely rich episode um, on food writing is also made me rethink the phrase Kiali Pulao. And it is so much more. Now I will imagine food in a different way through all of these different kinds of spaces um, that are complex, interrelated, but also give us something to rethink our present moment. Thank you to both of you uh, for this fantastic metaphor.